Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have a returning guest, Perry Marshall. Uh, Perry is an interesting guy for several reasons. So he's really well known in the marketing world. That's how I first came across him. I learned a tremendous amount. And then Perry's interest turned to science and in particular evolution, evolutionary biology. And um, he ended up writing a book called Evolution 2.0, which explores the divide between Darwinism and uh, intelligent design or creationism. So what I've seen Perry do really well is transition from one type of person to another. He's gone from, again, being a great marketer. He's applied that to being not only a great scientist, but marketing the ideas that he has uh, he espouses, and he's, you know, one of the huge things he's done is he's attracted $10 million of prize money for a prize that he'll describe shortly, but that feat for someone in the science world is incredible. So I wanted to have him on because I think more than anyone I know, he's uniquely positioned to talk about how scientists that have good ideas and have great research and, and things like that can get themselves out there and market themselves. So that's why, and uh, Perry, welcome. How are you doing? Um, thank you. It's great to be here. And this is actually a very interesting topic. And I've learned a lot of new things in the last few months for some many different reasons that I think you even flavor this a little more, probably making this a, di- a little different conversation than if we had done it when it was originally scheduled. So yeah, okay, well, this is going to be very interesting. Well, tell listeners about your prize. What's it for? And a little bit about what the experience of trying to attract that much money was like, because that's a big accomplishment to have done that. So the Evolution 2.0 prize came from me going down the evolution rabbit hole. And we, we did a previous podcast and people can go hear a whole talk about evolution. But I resolved that I, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And evolution, that was as it was described to me at a surface level, didn't really make sense to me as an engineer. And I said, well, either either the biologists know something the engineers don't know or, or the engineers know something the biologists don't know. And what I really found out was that the, the cells and organisms know something that none of us know, which mm-hmm. is how to self-modify. Now, the deepest question that I could get to was, how do you get a code? You know, since the genetic code is a code and since all living things are built using that code, I thought it was uh, very logical to ask the question, well, where did that code come from? And what I found out was nobody knows. In fact, nobody really has any idea. And what people said was that David Hume or Charles Darwin or Richard Dawkins or any number of different people have solved the design problem in biology. And what I found out was well, if you're talking about where life came from, nobody has solved the design problem in biology. Darwin didn't, Hume didn't, Dawkins, none of these guys. But then you you have this impasse where you have various flavors of design people that say, well, you know, God did it. And then you have 
the scientific process, which doesn't have any way of dealing with God, and where, you know, there's no scientist that can say, well, God did it, that settles it, let's just stick that in a scientific paper, and let's go out to lunch. So what I would say to a creationist is, well, you know, even if you're right, you could be right, but that doesn't really help the scientists do more and better research. It's kind of a dead end. Can't like he can't collect a paycheck for, you know, it doesn't slice the problem any further. But then what I'd say to, you know, people on the other side is uh, you don't get to make up a story uh, about a warm pond and a lucky lightning strike and a happy chemical accident. But I kept inquiring into this and I started to realize, you know, if somebody actually did solve this, it would be the biggest engineering discovery ever. Mm. It would be a bigger deal than the invention of the transistor. And since right now what you've got is these two sides just, uh, you know, throwing pies at each other and insulting each other and talking past each other, how about we put money on this problem and we say, look, this has not been solved, but the first person who does solves it, solve it gets $10 million. And what that does is it firmly establishes what questions we still don't know the answer. Um, and and that's yeah. very valuable. Yeah. And so, you know, you didn't just have this as pocket money, so you had to raise it. And yes. from what I've, I've seen, you raised this from people on both sides, not just one. Well, most of the money came from my clients. You know, I, I deal with all kinds of interesting business people. And I pitched all kinds of people, but the people that said yes were people that, for the most part, had already paid me money for this or that or, you know, came to a seminar or bought some consulting or whatever. And so, and it took a long time from from the, the day I first met with a prospective investor to actually having $10 million committed uh, was about seven years. And this is a very wow. weird investment. It's certainly not an illogical investment because, you know, well, if somebody discovers it uh, and we patent it, then, you know, they don't have to write the million-dollar check and, until the patent is granted. Nevertheless, it is not anything like, you know, buying a piece of real estate or stocks and bonds or anything. So it took quite a while. And I, I would say the crowning achievement of this was the $10 million prize announcement I was invited to give at the Royal Society in Great Britain, which is the oldest scientific organization in the world. Isaac Newton used to be uh, the president there. And, and, and then it, it was, uh, the video was on Voices from Oxford. And uh, the story was in the Financial Times two days later. And so we now have the largest prize of fundamental science research in history. And I'm very excited about that. And it's opened many doors for many conversations. I've gotten invited to both public and private meetings of scientists. And the deeper I go, the more fascinating this gets in terms of the inner workings of how the science community really works, what some of the problems are. And then your question, well, so how does a scientist market themselves in the 21st century? So here we are. Yeah, from what I've seen, I, you know, I've, it, it's, well, I'll give a little bit of background. So your Evolution 2.0 book was my first read into the evolutionary biology world. And because it was so clearly written, it's not like a scientific paper. I mean, I've, I've slowly acquired the skill of being able to read 
scientific papers and journals and understand uh-huh. what they're saying, which, which took a while. Uh-huh. Yes. So the book is super clear. I have gone through it five times and I've, you know, I've taught it to my kids. It's that clear, but it, it also opened up my journey to talk to hundreds of scientists and learn and, and see what their plight is about. And what I've heard over and over and over from these scientists is, well, you know, you have to do the research that gets funded because scientists don't have money. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, running a lab is like running a business and you have to apply for grants. And if you don't apply yeah. for the things that you know will get funded, you're wasting your time and you can't do the research you really want to do. But it's like yeah. old in handcuffs because you take money from the NIH or whoever it is, you have to research what they want in the way they want. And you're, you're narrowed, you're forced into this silo. And I see this, this like, I don't know, this trap that a lot of scientists are in. So what, what are your thoughts around? <laughs> wow, Rich, uh, you figured it out. You're reading my mind. This is a problem. This is mm. a big problem. Okay, so, so let's expand on what you just said. Uh, you, you're exactly right. You can't. So first of all, yes, a research lab is like a little company. In fact, there's all kinds of websites. You know, there's Smith Lab or Johnson Lab or, you know, McGillicuddy Lab or, you know, whoever it is, you know, somebody. And basically, it's like five to 10 to 15 grad students or postdocs and one or two or three professors. And, you know, they, they get like, let's say a million bucks a year from NIH or NSF. And then if they publish some good papers out of that, then they'll get some more funding and the thing can go on. And if you don't get funding, you're screwed. And the problem is, is you can only get funding for stuff that's in the current zeitgeist. And you can only get funding for stuff that matches the current theories and is in vogue. And there's always multiple theories about almost anything. You know, I know a scientist, for example, who when he got tenure, he said, well, I could keep running the dog and pony show and I could keep running this lab and I could keep going on the road and raising money or I could actually get something done. And he said, well, I'm going to actually get something done. And so he closed his lab and he stopped applying for grants. And well, let's just say his department head was really not very happy about it. Hmm. Now, he has since gone on to do what I would consider to be some incredibly important work, but he paid a price for doing that. And the primary mechanism of doing that was becoming an encyclopedia of other people's research rather than doing his own, which is probably fine. But it's a tough road. And and you have, there's two layers to the problem. So one layer to the problem is getting the funding from the funding agencies. But the other part of the problem is getting it published. And I have asked numerous scientists, so how bad is, on a scale of one to 10, how bad is the problem of publishing and peer review in terms of um, doing the research that you really think is important um, and being able to get it out there? And the last two people I asked, one scientist said it's a nine out of 10, and the other one said it's a 10 out of a 10. In other words, a very acute problem. Well, I can give you a, a quick bumper sticker. Peer reviewed is peer approved. So there's all okay, the politics so, so, of you know, who's going to approve you, and if they don't approve you, why don't they approve you? Because of the science, or because 
to some other agenda that they're beholden to. Well, so so peer review means that the editor is going to have a group of people, maybe three, four, five people, usually anonymously read your paper and comment on it. And it, you know, if they like your paper, then it'll get published with some modifications. And if even one or two of them don't like your paper, it probably gets shot down. You'll typically get to name five peers that you would like to have be reviewers and three that you don't. That, that request may or may not be honored, but okay, so why, why is stuff accepted or rejected? Well, the very simple problem is, is that it's very, very difficult to tell in advance what is good science. Okay, because, you know, you come up with some model of how a protein folds or some different take on how the Big Bang works or something like that. It could take years or even decades for, for somebody to definitively prove that your theory is wrong, let's say, or to come out with a really, really strong alternate theory that's clearly better. So, a lot of times it's very ambiguous, and then there are schools of thought, and if you don't belong to a popular school of thought, then you're part of the out club, and you're not going to get funding. And so, um, so the 80-20 rule applies to science public, and there's a handful of dominant science publications and publishers like Elsevier and, and journals like Science and Nature and PNAS, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. If, if you can get a paper published in one of those journals, you're in the in-club, but that's harder than getting into Harvard. And then if you have a fringy theory or something that's not in vogue, you could get in a third tier or fourth tier journal, but you know that's a little bit like kissing your sister. And so it's tricky. If you have a considerably different view than everybody else, you may have a lonely career. Are you saying it actually would hurt your career to be published in certain journals? Well, it's kind of like if you wanted to get a job at Hewlett Packard, would you want to have graduated from Southeast Community College in Lincoln, Nebraska? Oh, make it would harder to get help? a job there, right? Probably mm -hmm. make it harder, okay? Mm. So, it's tough. Now, here's another thing to think about. Let's say you're a grad student or a postdoc and you want to be a professor. Well, what do you want people to find when they Google you? Well, if you want a job as a professor, then you want your nose to be clean. You want some of your publications or things that you've worked on in your lab to have gotten published in major journals with your name on them. You want to not be associated with any controversy. You want to not have anybody be thinking that you're religious. And you need to be somebody who's not going to rock the boat. And in my opinion, most of those add up to a not very good scientist. Yeah, that, that's all I was going to ask you is what does that do to, the, to a publication itself? So if I want to get into these top journals, how am I intentionally or unintentionally altering what I'm researching, and how I'm talking about it, et cetera, to try to get into these journals and be accepted there? Well, I think it's a very sophisticated version of 
writing newspaper articles and headlines to get clicks. But it's much, much more sophisticated than that. Now, and I'm not joking about that because in academic publishing, you have something called impact factor of a journal. And if you Google the name of any scientific journal, Google Scholar or Google itself will tell you the impact factor. And the impact factor is an index of how many citations of your papers uh, you've gotten divided by the number of papers that you publish, something like that. Okay. And so there's journals with high impact factors where their papers are cited frequently. And there's mm-hmm. journals with low impact factor where the citations are, are not frequent. And keep in mind that Google itself was modeled after the citation system of scientific journals when Google started. And that turned out to be a better way of ranking websites than anything, any text that was on the page of the web page, right? So that became Google PageRank. So journals optimize for what internet marketers would call PageRank. They don't necessarily optimize for what's genuinely good science. And it's just like, you know, Yahoo News does not optimize for what's the truest or most useful thing that you could possibly know about the world. They optimize for, you know, Trump getting the most, you know, Trump saying something ridiculous and you get clickbait headlines and you get fake news and stuff like that. And that problem, which is a problem of reducing everything to measurements and numbers, which measurements and numbers are not the truth. They're just measures of popularity. A lot of editors will just default. They'll go, well, This paper will get cited a lot if we publish it. Well, the only way to, for a paper to, to be sure that a paper is going to be cited a lot, it's saying what people want to read in the first place. Yeah, this is, this this all sounds self-reinforcing. The top journals select the the publications that be most, the papers that are be most cited. Therefore, Mm -hmm. they're the most attractive to be published in. Therefore, they're the ones that, yeah, it's, it's self-reinforcing, it sounds like. <laughs> yes, it's what business people call network effect, right? It's mm-hmm. just like, you know, Uber, uh, uh, eBay. eBay gets more sellers, which attracts more buyers, which attracts more sellers, which attracts more buyers. Same thing with the science publication, right? Same thing with the, the impact factors of the journal, right? So it's, it's very, very 80-20 or very 90-10, and it's a bit of an echo chamber. Now, I can say this with total confidence that it's true because I've gone very, 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 very deep into evolutionary biology, and I know a lot of the literature, and I know there's all kinds of things that you find in the literature that are demonstrably false, and they just Hmm. keep getting repeated over and over and over and over again. So I wanted to, well, this is useful, but... Instead of just saying, like, you know, reporting on the state of the misery, any <laughs> tactics or strategies or ways that you've thought of that could help, you know, scientists that really want to get their work out there and believe that it's, you know, groundbreaking stuff to do so, to get more fame, uh, to get their publications cited, to get in these journals? Or, I mean, how, how do you, I don't want to say game the system, but how do you game the system? Any ideas? Well, I think I would be a study in how you do this because of my prize. You know, I had to get judges because otherwise, like 
ac credible academic people where nobody could reasonably question whether or not the judging of my prize is going to be fair. Now, the fact is, like, I'm an electrical engineer. I've designed stuff for years. I went to school. I know what a code is. I can recognize a code when I see one. Technically, I don't really need, but socially, I need judges, right? So I ended up with George Church from Harvard, Dennis Noble from Oxford, Michael Ruse from Florida State University, and I approached a ton of scientists about being a prize judge. Most of them would not touch it with a 10-foot pole. Mm. The only ones that would touch it were rock stars, mm. or you could also say emeritus professors whose ongoing success is not dependent on whether certain people don't like them. Okay, right, so yeah. George Church is a rock star in genetics. I mean, he Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people of 2017. He's published 400 papers. He's probably the most, he's one of the five most famous geneticists alive, okay? Well, he didn't have any hesitation about it. I said to him, when we were discussing it, I said, George, if you don't like controversy, do not do this. And he goes, Perry, right. everything I do is controversial. I'm trying to create Jurassic Park at Harvard. Don't worry about it. That's fine. Okay, this is what he said. Dennis Noble is a renegade. He has defied the neo-Darwinists um, fiercely. In fact, they won't fight him anymore because they can't win. They know that he will rip them to shreds in a debate, and they've all been given invitations to debate him, and all the invitations have been turned down. Well, Dennis uh, is a physiologist. His research does not depend on his opinions on evolutionary biology, and so he doesn't care. He yeah. just wants to tell the truth. So no problem being one of Perry's judges. Michael Ruse, well, Michael's always espoused unpopular positions. And always been fine with that. But your typical scientist can't afford to do that. So what am I saying? If you have a view that is not in the current zeitgeist, you need to get the endorsement of somebody who's bulletproof, mm. who will vouch for you. You have to make friends. And I find these are usually emeritus professors, which is, that's academic lingo for retired. Okay. Right. And they, they also, I've also found the emeritus guys, they have time to go read and study and explore. They're not on a ferocious treadmill of just having to do the same stuff over and over again, run their lab, write more grant proposals and, and all of that. And so they, they have more time and space to think. I mm -hmm. would say that the typical professor is so busy that he doesn't have time to think. Yeah, I've noticed um, that you can tell when I'm friends when I've gotten to the friend level with a, an emeritus professor because they start emailing me papers. That's their way of yes. like, you know, showering their love on you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's love from a scientist. Hey, you know, I'm yeah. working on this paper and don't share it with anybody, but, you know, tell me what you think. And look, right, you, know, exactly. they're, you know, they've been working on it for the last eight months. It's, it's their baby. And they've, mm -hmm. they have slaved over every single word of it. You know, and another thing is that Talking to civilians in the public about science is not particularly honored among scientists. You know, if you'll notice that most scientists do not have a blog 
telling the world all of the, you know, why the general public should be interested in this latest discovery about protein. They don't usually do that. They, they kind of live in their own clique. So uh, if you decide to go write books that are aimed at popular readers, it may raise some eyebrows. I mean, it's, it's not like seriously frowned upon, but it's almost like, so why are you spending your time talking to all those people? You know, that. Okay, here's a question. So how do you become a Neil deGrasse Tyson or a George Church or an Atul Gawande? How do you still maintain your dignified professionality, your, you know, your scientific power or your scientific clout, but still talk to the public and be popular like that? How do you become a popular scientist? The way you become a popular scientist is you get really, really good at writing and communicating and explaining. I mean, there certainly there are a lot of people that like to hear science clearly explained. Um, and that's, you know, that's why people go to Neil deGrasse Tyson or people like that. Now, George Church is a rock star because he's a maverick, renegade, crazy, madman experimenter. He's I mean, he's the mad sci- a real-life mad scientist who's extremely smart and has just been on the bleeding edge of genetics for 30 years, uh, 40, I suppose. And now he's more of a rock star in the science community. Uh, Tyson is not, okay? Uh, there's some people that kind of are, are both, like Stephen Hawking, but that's, mm. that's a little rare. You know, Richard Dawkins is immensely popular, or has been. His popularity is waning, I suppose. But he's not particularly respected by scientists. Um, he's kind of a sellout. So you, there's really a wide range of, you know, whether these people are respected by both crowds or just... What do you think is the motivation or the set of motivations of, of hardcore scientists? What do they really want? Like, what would their dream be if they could have it? Well. I think there's a couple things. One of them is they just like discovering. They like, you know, when they're in their lab and they're trying stuff and surprising things happen and they're in flow and maybe they're the first person to have ever observed some particular thing, that is exhilarating. And then another motivation that's, I think, a little more you know, common to everybody is they want recognition for making these discoveries. You know, they want it to get published. They want it to be in, you know, Journal of the American Medical Association or what have you. They want to be, you know, hopefully, well, maybe I could be the next Watson or Crick or Hawking or Ampere or Volt or Isaac Newton or or miniature version of the above, right? Okay, maybe I'm not Isaac Newton, but I could be the Isaac Newton of protein folding, or RNA synthesis or, or something like that. Or maybe I can make a discovery that will hugely impact medicine or health care or cancer research or what have you. So maybe uh, a good idea would be to, would, again, it's funny, it's analogous in the marketing you teach, but become a niche celebrity, you know, to become the, uh, the Einstein of cancer or become the, uh, you know, again. The, yeah, and it, would, Isaac Newton it wouldn't else. even... It wouldn't even be the Einstein of cancer. It would be like, be the Einstein of liver cancer or the Einstein of prostate or 
even some, I mean, there are so many sub, 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 sub special. Uh, I mean, they, they go miles deep. Usually when you go to a scientist's webpage, they are so deep in some field of specialization that it is difficult to even try to explain it to a lay person. They're, they're literally, you know, four or five levels deep in specialization. And they, they may be dealing with a particular enzyme in the kidney, and they've been studying that for 10 years. Yeah, do you think that's a good thing? Or is it too reductionist, too specialized? And why do they end up that way, so many scientists? Well, yes, I, I do think often it's too reductionist. But it's the only way to get funding without butting heads. So marketers know this very well. Category of one. You want to be the only person who does what you do, right? Okay, you don't want to be butting heads with 10 other people that also sell pizza on the same block. Well, scientists are the same way. And so it's very rare, and it, well, for good reason. It's how they get funded, right? It's like, well, if you're one of the top three people in kidney enzymes, then you're almost certain to make a right? The problem is, is... Most scientists don't really have time to read outside their specialty, and they just have to take everybody else's word for it. And frankly, like the typical physicist or chemist or what have you, they get most of their ideas about evolutionary biology from Barnes and Noble or Amazon the same way everybody else does. I mean, two, I might, that's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but they're certainly not getting to the bottom of things. They're just trusting the kind of general consensus opinion of what they hear a lot of other scientists say. They don't actually, and scientists don't like to, you know, start stepping on each other's toes in fields they're not expert in because that's not taken too kindly. That just gets you enemies. And so, uh, you know, everybody just kind of stays in their cubicle and, you know, one in 50 will have a really broad sweeping knowledge of, of an entire discipline. Well, I was just going to tell you that, you know, I've, again, I've interviewed probably easily 500 scientists. Um, and they're wow. always saying things like, you know, well, I'm not an expert in that. So that's how they, right. you know, they, they, they avoid answering it. Or they, they literally don't want to speculate or they won't speculate or they can't speculate or I don't know what it well, is. But and that's what I'm, that's and what mostly I'm they shouldn't. But they, they know that these fields are so deep and complex, and they know that the truth is so usually far from the surface, deep down there somewhere, that like there is no upside to speculating about things outside your field. It could that, get you reamed in public, and that would be very bad. You know, then somebody Googles you and, oh, you know, this guy got in a tiff with an expert, and this guy's not an expert. Like, why does he go do that, right? So uh, this is another reason why fields have to be reformed by outsiders, right? So in my case, you know, I researched this stuff until, you know, everything in Evolution 2.0, I was absolutely sure was, and, and I put it out there. And as far as I can tell, it's still absolutely correct. There haven't been any significant corrections or rebuttals like, no, he, he didn't explain that right. He did, there's very little of that because it's right, but it, it takes a long time to get there. So I guess, you know, science is no different from many other endeavors. It's uh, constrained and it's censored and it's, uh, it's, you know, money runs it. 
and interest and politics and all that run it. And I just wonder if there's, you know, is there more insight on how to navigate that world successfully? So you're not just, you know, a, a no, a no name that uh, is working in a lab for 30 or 40 years and on one enzyme yeah. and that's the end of you. Well, I, I'm needing to, to wrap this up, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of thoughts. Sure. So Len Margulis did not get very much funding from the government. And uh, some of her funding came from going out and giving speeches and lectures and funneling the money into her research. And she did it any way she could get it done. Barbara McClintock had people above her who believed in her research, despite the fact that it wasn't popular with the, most of her colleagues. Some people managed to, so like if you can get a chaired professorship, which is basically like extra money with, you know, with some street cred attached to it, it gives you the freedom to go do things that your colleagues don't do. But essentially it's, well, you, whether it's through the way that you structure your research or the way you structure for your career, you could almost think of it like the best, your best friend is an alternative source of income or an alternative source of funding. You know, so, uh, maybe some people can do corporate research, but have enough space to do stuff on the side, have your side project or skunk works project. That mm. can be the key time. I think you have to think entrepreneurially. I think within the confines of the system, it's kind of depressing. But if you can just accept that it might take a renegade 10 or 20 years to get their ideas accepted and you're okay with that, then you just get on with it and eventually time can prove you right. Certainly was the case with me. So yeah, well, hey, it's been great being on here. This is really fascinating. Uh, more interesting than I thought it would. And, you know, the questions okay. you're asking are right along the lines of what I've been thinking about anyway. So, um, so Rich, thank you for having me. Yeah, last, last thing, uh, how can people get your Evolution 2.0 book and how can they find out about the prize? Uh, yes, go to evo2.org, evo2.org. And... The prize is, uh, there's a link to the prize on the website, and Evolution 2.0 is on Amazon, and it will change the way you see the entire world. So I encourage you to get that. Great, Perry. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. <laughs>